This is the first episode of the Happy Manifesto podcast. I'm Henry Stewart, Chief Happiness Officer at Happy. I'm Maureen. I am a Senior Facilitator and Chief Confidence Activator. Did you know that, Henry? I'm a Chief Activator. That's an exciting one. Yes. <laughs> what does that involve? So basically, I know that part of my strengths when I'm training and facilitating is to activate people's confidence because when they feel good about themselves, they tend to, 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 to have a go. And it also means helping people feel more supported. Okay, grand. And on this first episode, we have one of my top management gurus. Who is it, Maureen? It's Tom Peters. Yay! I know. (laughs) I was cheering inside, Henry. He's so awesome. He is, isn't he? He's amazing. But before that, what has brought you joy at work? It was my birthday not so long ago. Hey! And at Happy is that they acknowledge our birthday by giving us that day. So... For my day, I decided it's all about well-being and I took myself off to the spa, spent the day in the spa all by myself celebrating me and it was fantastic. It was fantastic. It's the best thing that you can do. When you feel good about yourself, then you give the best of yourself. So thank you, Happy, for my birthday day off. Oh, that's grand. I went to hear a group of alumni from Unison who have been on our Level 5 apprenticeship programme And it was fabulous to hear them. They were talking about how one of them talked about how it was the best course they'd ever been on. And they'd done a degree and a PGCE and how it had uh, enabled them to get a job in the Welsh government shadowing. Uh, They'll come back to Unison again, but they're shadowing. Uh, There was somebody also talked about how they used pre-approval, which is how you instead of approving something at the end, you approve it before and how they they deliver that to their their people and said, look, whatever you do, as long as you work within these guidelines, whatever you do in terms of the industrial dispute you're involved in, I will back you. And that, that was great to hear. It was great to hear. Oh, that's fabulous. It's so good when you hear the success stories of those, you know, have got, who've worked hard on these apprenticeships. They have, haven't they? They have, yeah. absolutely. And my happy tip, um, which is a bit similar to yours in a way, is at Happy, we have a fully paid sabbatical, one month after 12 years, two months after 20 years, a month again after 25 and two months after 30. So I am going interrailing. Interrailing? Where are you going, Henry? I am going to Luxembourg, Switzerland, Italy, Sarajevo, Slovenia, Montenegro, um, Albania, North Macedonia, all over the place for six weeks without a laptop, Without an email, I will be completely cut off. How will you cope? (laughs) I will cope fine. (laughs) You're going to have a fabulous time. I am... I am jealous. I will say I am jealous. I wish I was going with you. But that <laughs> that so awesome. be, that, I would love to have you come with us. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should take the podcast on the trip with you. Absolutely. We could do. <laughs> and your happy tip. So my happy tip is, um, well, it's, I'll be at work. So it's going to be a workplace <laughs> happy tip. <laughs> okay. So my happy tip is around it's something that Tom Peters shared in sense of keep 50% of your time unscheduled. Yes. Now, for for me, 50% is a bit difficult. And with anything, I will always say adapt it to how it fits you. So for me at this time, what I've done is now unscheduled two hours at the beginning of the day. So the first two hours of my day is for me. And that's to take time to check in what I need to do, understand what it is I want to achieve, what are my objectives, and check in with people 
you know, because sometimes we don't schedule that time. You know, we might do one-to-ones, but actually take time out just to check in on, on our people. So the first two hours is about me. They're blocked out in my calendar. No one can interrupt me. <laughs> and that's it. Absolutely. That's, that's similar to Bruce Daisy's monk mode morning, where at least two or three days a week, you have no email and no meetings before 11 o'clock. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And I'll, I'll keep you guys updated to see how it goes because it's so easy to go off track. But I would love to hear anybody else who's tried this, you know, and what other tips they can help me keep me on track. Okay, folks, now over to Tom Peters. When I started Happy 34 years ago, Tom was a big person for me. He was writing in The Observer. I remember reading Liberation Management back in May 1986. He wrote about having only five levels of management, even in a big multinational. In 88, he wrote, snuff the bureaucrats, embrace the customer, listen to the workers. And back in the 90s, I remember hearing him talking about the importance of having women in your leadership positions, which had been something he'd been talking about all that time. And we're talking today about his new book, Tom Peters' Compact Guide to Excellence. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I couldn't believe this. So, Tom, this is my first book, reading of your book. And I smiled all the way through it. I just couldn't believe the great ideas and lessons that you have in this book. And I just was trying to imagine if we had organizations that implemented you know, even a half of what you put in this book, what would the world look like? Those are incredibly kind words. And when one is uh, reasonably close to book launch, lovely words to hear. So I'm delighted it worked for you. It did. It did. Yeah, I really loved it. So this is why I'm excited to hear firsthand questions that we can ask you from ideas from your book. So um, Happy Strapline is creating joy at work. And you quote Anita Roddick saying, my passionate belief is that business can be fun. It can be conducted with love and a powerful force for good. Tell us more about that. Well, I became a great pal of Anita's for starter. Oh, really? And, yeah, I was a huge fan and was uh, desolate when she passed oh. away at a very young age. I guess here's my simple logic. Unless you were born with a silver spoon, and I assume that, I don't know whether we got it from the Brits or the Brits got it from us, <laughs> but I presume it carries across the Atlantic. Unless you were born with a silver spoon, you will spend more of your waking life at work than even with your family if you adore your family. And so the way I put it in very (laughs) crude language is if you piss away your days at work, you piss away your life. And yeah, I'm trained as an engineer. Mathematically, (laughs) I'm right. You know, you can love love your kids to death and love your spouse to death and so on, but statistically, unless you were born rich, you're going to spend more time. And so the translation then is good heavens. I mean, the simple translation is good heavens. Let's make it a pleasant place to be. Absolutely. Through all the rest of the rift that this happens to be an incredible way to make money and so on, which I'm you know, more than happy to do because I'm dealing with business audiences. But it's, it is, and you too know this better than I because of what you do. It's just criminal to me to have decency, thoughtfulness, kindness, yeah. et cetera. And so, I, I mean, I, I just, you know, I'm an incredibly old man now. And it's like, Jesus, why do I have to keep saying this? It's as obvious yeah. as <laughs> the end of your nose. And, and again, 
I'm not sure what the, whether the English translation is accurate, but what I've said, in the United States, we go to school at roughly the age of six, and we go to the first grade, second grade, third grade. And so you're an eight-year-old yeah. and you're in the third grade. And my one-liner is, I am a very sophisticated person with several degrees in technical subjects. If you want to understand my work, you must present to me a signed certificate of completion of the third grade. (laughs) (laughs) Literally no other, no more sophisticated intellectual. Well, listen, here's one of my favorite stories, and it's in the the new book. Teacher stands in a doorway to a classroom. And as the kids come in in the morning, he just nods and he's got a smile on his face and he says, morning, Dave, good morning, Judy, whatever, whatever, whatever. And that's it. A smile, a personal greeting, disciplinary problems fall through the floor, academic work goes through the ceiling. I mean, all it is, is recognizing you as an individual, as a human being and doing so with a little bit of a smile and you turn the world upside down. And anybody who doesn't think that experience with a seven-year-old doesn't translate into a workplace with 37-year-olds is just is nuts. It's a fundamental human thing. Yeah. I mean, just to add to that, you had the seven commandments, be kind, be caring, be patient, be forgiving, be present, be positive, walk in the other person's shoes. And that is just so simple to change the dynamic and the way people will be in the workplace with each other. As yeah. you said, we spent so many hours together. Well, I, I did that little list of seven things. I called it the COVID-19 leadership seven because mm-hmm. when the pandemic started, uh, my wife was heavily involved with things in the community. And I said to myself at one point, what the hell are you doing sitting here on your buns when the world is going to hell? <laughs> and so, you know, we had done a bunch of podcasts and so on. And I asked my colleagues to see if anybody would like me to talk about leadership in the times of a pandemic is a pretty, you know, it's an arrogant thing to do, but whatever. And so we did, and that was the list and, uh, people responded to it, you know, ex- exceedingly well. I, my summary, I said, listen, if those seven words are, are too much for you, let me translate it into plain English. Don't be a jerk. And well, I, here, here's, the, here's the example I gave. Judy is working for me. We have three or four Zoom meetings a week. Judy is always on time and she is always prepared. And so I'm sitting down to her to do kind of an assessment thing. And I say, Judy, I'm going to give you some points off. And let me tell you why I'm going to give you some points off. I happen to know that you've got a mother in an extended care facility. I know that you have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old, and I want you to be late. And I want you to take care of your family. Wow. And I want you to be less productive. Right. You know, this this is not the time for productivity maximization. It's time for human decency, taking care of our loved ones and neighbors, and so on. And I said, "You're the greatest person in the world," but you know, I, I really mean it. Be late. And that would be my pitch. Moving on to other bits of the book, you were very busy, aren't we? And you, you, so you reckon that leaders should keep 50% of their time as unscheduled, which Maureen has just uh, said she's going to do. Why do you think that? Well, it's not me. It came from a book called Leadership the Hard Way, co-written by a guy by the name of Doug Froman, who was a very senior officer at Intel and ran Intel's facilities in Israel during one of the many wars that took place over there, et cetera, et cetera. 
But what he was saying, again, was pretty straightforward and simple language. The idea of leadership is to be prepared, to be available. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not to go to 17 meetings in a row, <laughs> one after another. You lose your humanity. Your mind is just not working creatively. And you know, I would not expect that many leaders would pass Mr. Froman's 50% level, but mm-hmm. most of the leaders I've seen are more like 3% if that. And so my practical point is you nudge it up there, get it to 10% or 20% or 25% and just be available. You know, it's just being available. You know, there was, we stole this thing way back in, we were doing our in search of excellence research in 1979 from Hewlett Packard, MBWA mm-hmm. managed yep. by wandering around. And I remember my favorite, one of the favorite things I heard, it was from a hospital administrator and he had an open door policy. And to prove it, he took his door off and hung it on the ceiling above the outside of his office door. Well, I, w- I want to say some slightly tougher-minded things, too, in this regard. Empathy is a literal, serious part of hiring criteria for 100% of jobs, in my opinion. And <laughs> got to have empathy cubed relative to promotion to the first level of management. You know, the statistics are clear. The first line leader drives everything. And there's Mm -hmm. hard-nosed research that says quality, profitability, innovation. It's all driven by that collection of first line leaders. And the magic of leadership is empathy. You know, there was a guy who I quoted, he ran a very successful, runs a very successful biotech firm and he said, we only hire nice people. Yeah. And the point is, which he said, you can't even understand the name of half of the jobs of my scientists because it's so sophisticated. But he <laughs> said, I figured this thing out. Give me the most sophisticated degree in the world. And actually, there are a lot of nice people who have that degree. Don't hire the jerks. <laughs> and, and Google did this thing, which we, well, it was reported somewhere else. I reported on the report, they studied their best employees and their most innovative teams. And you probably saw it. There were eight attributes of the best individuals and seven of them were soft stuff, like listening, care, respect. And that's from Google. And the last one on the list of eight was the, you know, was the, was STEM, but the first seven were being human. And, you know, I've been around software firms. I lived in Silicon Valley for 30 years. One of the ones with the most innovative teams was no bullying. And Mm -hmm. when you get 23-year-old Stanford and MIT computer science graduates together asking for no bullying, it's like asking the sun to rise in the West, but it's, (laughs) they're doing it and it works. That was Project Aristotle, wasn't it? It was, and it was where the best scientists didn't get the best results. It was where the it was the, you said the B teams got the best results. Yeah, they, yeah, B teams because they cooperated, they listened, they were interested in diverse points of view. I mean, the A teams were basically to be slightly unfair, filled with 17 people, all of whom knew they were the smartest human beings God ever put on <laughs> earth. And why the hell should I have to listen to your crap? And that's, yeah. that's being unfair, but having lived in Silicon Valley with those people for a long time. <laughs> really <laughs> okay so i'm gonna just take it sorry else because i when i was reading the yep. book 
there was an acronym that you used and it just made me think about being human is actually acknowledging that we make mistakes. And at Happy, we have a principle where we celebrate our mistakes. So the acronym that you had was (laughs) WTTMSW. I don't see why I should have to explain it. (laughs) WTTMSW. And then you extended it. Yeah, yeah, extension, right. All right, so so, so give it to me. The big, big, big extension. The big, big extension was Whoever tries the most things and makes the most mistakes, the fastest wins. Yeah. Okay. And then you, you know, <laughs> I, got, I think I got it. But I then your, your extension was then you added up screw ups, who does the most screw ups, and the, who screws up the most wins the fastest. Yeah. Well, my, my real favorite for that was I was giving a speech many, many years ago in Sydney, Australia. And there was this business person in my office who, in my audience, who had a biggish, middle-sized, successful business. And he said, my success is due to six words, reward excellent failures, punish mediocre successes. Whoa. And you know, you, you've, not, you've got, you're, all, you're both incredibly bright and so on and so forth, but you've got to read it about a, you know, 20 times to really let it sink mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. The thing that screws up, but there was this magnificent thing that you tried, that's what yeah. it's way in gold. Yeah. The success that's 1.236% better than the last round <laughs> is, uh, you know, not going to get you into heaven. No, and I really love that because I train with apprentices. And one of the things is to get them to learn, to get them to understand that making mistakes is one of the best things that you can do. And I suppose part of the reason why I wanted to ask this question was that what if the screw-up is that big? Because that's what people are afraid of. I remember, I don't remember the company talking to the guy who ran half of a big, I think it was a consumer goods company. And when he said, the first thing he related to people was his giant mistakes. You know, when we spent three years on the XYZ product and the market share was zero 18 months later. But from that, we got a feeling for this and a feeling for that. And the guy who used to run PepsiCo, who I knew a little bit, said, you know, all of our successes have come from embarrassing mistakes along oh, the really? way. Not little tinkle dinkle mistakes, but <laughs> you know, things that really embarrass the living daylights out of you. And, you know, again, that makes perfect sense to me. It makes sense. It's logical. It's not, you know, you don't, we're not going out into la-la land. That is a logical conclusion. And the research is clear. Oh, there's another one. Oh, I, I, my memory isn't that good, but there's a wonderfully sophisticated one that came from some Nobel laureate about, we think your idea is silly, but we really don't think it's silly enough. well it's just let's do this little twist and golly that sounds great i want to hear something makes me go oh my god you know oh my god this is amazing or oh my god how could you be that stupid and that starts a useful discussion absolutely tom i wanted to ask you about strategy now when you were at mckinsey strategy was a big deal but here you quote lots of people quote herb kelleher founder of southwest airlines and several others are saying strategy is actually just getting stuff done. Is that right? I have not got a problem with strategy. You'd be an idiot to do that. But life is execution, for God's sakes. <laughs> my favorite, my favorite one-liner that I use 
actually came from the commander of U.S. forces at D-Day, General Omar Bradley. And the Bradley quote was, amateurs talk about strategy, professionals talk about logistics. And Uh the question for General Eisenhower on D-Day was not that he picked the best landing place, but were the damn bullets in the same place that the guns were? You know, know, that's that's the story. And the you know the D-Day success had to do with how well they had mapped the bottom of the sea, so that when in fact the amphibious landing ships came into shore, all the people on them wouldn't drown. I mean, that's the success secret. And you know, so so sure strategy, sure think about what you're doing, but. Let's get, and again, it goes, you know, it's tied to the last thing that you guys were talking to me about. If you wait forever for the perfect strategy, then you're not making the interesting mistakes. You know, you just got to get in there. But, you know, my favorite personal example is I am told that I give pretty good speeches, but I don't give pretty good speeches if I miss the plane. And so I am nauseatingly (laughs) fanatic about having the flight and having the backup to the flight, yeah. and having the backup right. to the backup to the flight. <laughs> yeah. I spent more time on, you know, what happens when the airlines do this, or when they do that, or what have you. Or what do you do when there's an unexpected squall that comes into Heathrow, and 75,000 bags are lost, and I end up at the place where I'm speaking without anything to wear. You know, that's what you got to be ready for. <laughs> but fortunately, I was in India where you can find a tailor who will make you an entire three-piece suit overnight or by the end of the day. <laughs> Not a perfect fit, but you can't have everything. <laughs> that's amazing. That It makes so much sense. You know, logistics, logistics. Logistics, okay. logistics, logistics. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Well, but see, all these damn things are not 180 degrees, but 179 degrees from what business schools teach. You know, I had, I, McKinsey has not fallen on hard times, but has misbehaved in ways that are disgusting in recent mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. And the FT asked me to write a piece about it. And in the piece, I don't remember exactly the words, but I said the most significant thing we can do to avoid this sort of thing is to close every business school on earth. And of course, I don't mean it, but I do mean it directionally, you know, because this, the joy stuff, the people stuff, the execution stuff, that ain't the business school curriculum. Yeah. You learn the accounting, you learn the strategy, you learn the marketing, none of which are unimportant, but they aren't the essence of success in life. I remember asking a question of the deans of business schools. And I said, why do you focus so much on strategy and finance when people are the most important thing? And I think it was Roger Martin who answered me, and he said, well, we do the easy stuff. Yeah, and Roger is the perfect example of a guy who tried to do it the other way. And at the Rotman School at the University of Toronto, he made a big difference that way. It goes on for me now because it is about the people. And again, one of the um, quotes that you've put in your book is that if you want the staff to give great service to customers, the leaders have to, to give great service to the staff. And... That was a great, a big wow to me. Because yeah. Well, I mean, there are even a couple of books out that, you know, there was a guy I knew who ran a big travel agency <laughs> and turned it around and grew it into something magnificent and so on. And the title of his book was Putting the Customer Second. 
And then a very successful hospital administrator did the same thing and had a book titled Putting the Patient Second. You know, you're going to treat the patient well if the, you know, the staff is in the right place, in the right mood, et cetera. That was Hal Rosenbaum, wasn't it, that did the put the customer yeah, second? Yeah, One of the classic books I read when I started Happy. I loved it. It was really, th- and he was a good guy. He's a very, very good guy. Oh, God, I can't remember the whole story. But there was some, I know it was a drought or whatever it was, something was knocking the heck out of the uh, central Midwest in the U.S., the Dakotas and so on. And so Hal's response was to open a big facility out there to employ people. Instead of the other, the first 217 places people would have said he ought to have the facility. <laughs> and as he said, you know, you do something like that. And what happened? His absenteeism was approximately zero. His lateness <laughs> score was approximately zero and so on. Myself and Henry had a discussion about this beforehand. Excellence is the next five minutes. So I was like, well, tell me more then. It's like five minutes. So it's going to take five minutes for excellence to come about. Or is it a loop? that happens over and over again. So tell me more about this. Well, I think the general thought of excellence is winning an Olympic gold medal, winning a sports championship, being the most profitable company. Real excellence is the quality of the three of our conversations. It's what's (laughs) happening right now. And if it's a good quality conversation, things will spin out of it. People will listen to us or watch us. And two people are get an idea and really go for it. So the long term to me is utter nonsense. I've got a little, I don't remember where I got it. It's a picture of three caskets. One of them is a plain brown casket, wood casket. Another one, second one's a plain brown wooden casket. And the third one looks like it came from some Egyptian, you know, whatever. And the first one says, first plain brown casket says unsuccessful people. Second plain brown casket says successful people. And the third one say people who say thank you to the bus driver when they get off the bus. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I just love it. I mean, it was really a yeah. wonderful experience. There's an awful lot not to be proud of in the American South, but my mother came from the South and taught me pretty good manners. And so one day, I was flying somewhere and came into BWI, Baltimore, Washington International Airport, and you had to take a a bus to go out to where the rental cars were. And it was 6.15 in the morning. And so, you know, bus came by that said rental car area. And so I got on the bus and I said, is this the bus that goes out to the rental car area? And the driver looked at me and he got a big smile on his face and he said, don't we usually begin conversations like this with, and how are you this morning? Oh my God. My mother rolled in her grave and beat me into a bloody pulp. But, you know, it's so true. I mean, you know, but David Brooks is a famous American columnist who writes for the New York Times. And one of his columns was on what he called resume virtues versus eulogy virtues. And resume virtues were the degrees you have, the promotions you got, et cetera, et cetera. The eulogy virtues, obviously, are what do they say about you at your funeral? And they don't talk about your degrees and they don't talk about this. They talk about 
what kind of a human being were you? And I mean, I hope I'm on the right side of that one, but it really hit me right between the eyes. Yeah. Well, one, one more question, Tom. What are your three tips for a happy workplace? One of my favorite quotes, it's in the book, three things are important in the world. The first is to be kind. The second is to be kind. <laughs> and the third is to be kind. <laughs> and let me just add, there is a wonderful book that was called uh, Kindness in Leadership. It was edited or co-edited by a friend of mine whose name is Gay Haskins, who is with the Oxford Said Business School. And it's just a fantastic book. And it's Kindness in Leadership, and it goes through every kind of organization imaginable, from sports teams to whatever, whatever. There was an army general whose name was Melvin Zace, and he was giving a speech to senior U.S. officers in the War College, and he said, there is one tip that I can give you that'll be the most important tip that you ever hear. And it doesn't require special intellect, and it doesn't require special character. And the tip is, you must care. Right. And yeah. I was invited to the U.S. Naval Academy uh, to give an invited lecture and I had read the Zace thing and was totally turned on by it. And he was a general after all. And these are the old days of cassette tapes. And I actually, <laughs> I wasn't getting a fee, but I bought 4,000 cassette tapes with that speech and gave one to each of the U.S. midshipmen who were in that oh. way. Oh, wow. wow. And I think it's the best investment in the future I ever made. So we'll go with you must care or Better yet, be kind. Three things are important be kind, be kind, <laughs> and be kind. I love and it. Back to the other thing that I said about <laughs> resume virtues and so on. I have a slide that I use occasionally, and it is a tombstone. And as I said to somebody, I know about tombstones because my ex wife father made tombstones or carved tombstones. And the tombstone says 17,382,000. 614 dollars and nine cents net worth on the day that he died there are no tombstones with net worth <laughs> remember that no. so this is tom peter's compact guide to excellence which he says is his last book but tom i remember you saying that about the previous book so yeah but this, this book is a see it it's a little tiny hole in your handbook that's the whole point <laughs> is the, the look and the feel and the character of the book so we're trying to really boil it down, as you guys have done such a brilliant job of doing in the last half hour. I really thank you for this opportunity. Thank you, Tom. With thank that. you, Tom. Here's what you have to remember. There's a motivational speaker by the name of Tony Robbins. And I said to yeah. somebody, if Tony Robbins walks into an audience of a thousand people, he expects to change a thousand lives. <laughs> if I walk into an audience of a thousand people and two people walk out and say, we're really going to go after the world in a different way. I've had the most successful day in my life. Well, <laughs> my hands up. I'm, I, like I said, when I read that book, I was gleaming and I really, I'm going for it. I'm going to make some changes. Absolutely. Well, well, thank you all both so much for taking the time to talk with me about it. I'm still grinning. There's so much goodness. Like I like to say, there was so much juice, great tips and information and lovely stories. They were. And if only all organizations could be like that, could, as he as says, the three tips, be kind, be kind, be kind. I know. And this is the thing. Everything is so simple. And 
that can just make such a difference. Absolutely. Yeah. If if yeah. everybody could be like that, could be caring, yeah. kindness, yes, they're just listening to your people. It, I mean, what I took from the five minutes, you know, yeah. excellence, and it's about just being present, being really present, listening and being present. And that's when you connect and that's where the great ideas, inspirations, motivation, everything that you want comes out of that little five minutes and being present. Absolutely. So folks, let's continue creating joy at work and creating those happy workplaces based on kindness and caring. 